0: Um, good morning. My name is Gunther, uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, in addition to what Ben was talking about in the announcements, we also want to uh, welcome and you know call in a number of men. Uh, we're having our relaunch of the men's Wednesday night meeting uh, coming up this Wednesday at uh, seven thirty. Coming early would be great if you'd want to. So just want to invite if you haven't had a chance to. Check that out the last year that we've had it. This would be a good time to get on board and join us. So that'll be in the warehouse uh, this Wednesday, 730. Come and see what it's all about. Um, Obviously, a number of us uh, are dealing with friends and relatives that uh, are sick right now, certainly waiting for their tests and dealing with COVID-19. Also, Brian and Sherry, they're uh, at home. Uh, not here today, and they're awaiting their test. So what I'd like to do is, uh, you know, let, let's just spend a second, and let's pray, not only for Brian and Sherry, but for uh, anybody else that's near and dear to your heart that is dealing with this at this particular time, okay? So feel feel, feel free to join me. Uh, Father, just, uh, you're the healer, and we recognize that you alone uh, the one that gives us our very breath moment by moment. So in that comfort and that joy and the power of who you are, would you just be merciful to those that are near and dear to us that are uh, dealing right now with being sick. We ask for strengthening and encouragement and also your nearness, uh, that your voice would be the one they hear above all others. And uh, we ask for a complete restoration. Pray for Brian and Sherry, that they would quickly uh, be feeling better, as well as those that uh, we know about personally. So, again, we just commit ourselves to you for your protection and for your healing, and that you are the one who makes us well. In Jesus' name, please. Amen. Okay. And uh, so... As you know, uh, we've been going through the book of First Peter. If you're visiting, that's the book that we're studying right now uh, on a uh, every Sunday morning basis. Um, and uh, where Pastor Brian left off uh, last week, he'll go ahead and pick up uh, next Sunday. But this morning, I'm, I'm going to share out of uh, Peter's second letter that he wrote uh, as an encouragement to all of us. Um, and also to find foundation in these really fluid times. So um, let's go ahead and go to that first slide, if we could. And uh, our screen isn't working up there, so if you need a Bible, by the way, some of our guys are handing out some Bibles for your, if you don't happen to have one, be glad to take one home. So this morning, uh, we're on a pathway. In following Christ, when he said, come and follow me, There's a pathway that he guides us through. And so we're going to look at two guideposts on that pathway this morning as we look at 2 Peter. And the first would be eyewitnesses, those that have seen something and are reporting that. And so our heart hopefully will will have open ears to hear that testimony. And secondly is uh, the idea of prophecy uh, given in the Bible and being able to see the fulfillment of that. Uh and these are two guideposts that are rather important for us to be able to do that. So let's go ahead and uh read Second Peter chapter one, verses fifteen through twenty one. It says sixteen through twenty one. I'm not sure which is right. But uh let's go ahead and stand while we read this. And Peter says in opening up his letter, more or less, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And let's go to the next slide. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's God's word to us. So, Father, um, open our our ears, our hearts, our minds, and plow deeply your voice into the very depths of our souls. In Jesus' name, please. Amen. Let's go back to that first Scripture slide there if we could. And what Peter is saying here, because in the book of Second of Peter, what he's describing is false teachers and false teaching. And so he's making it known, the, the letter that he's writing to various churches in the area, is that we ne- did not follow myths or fables cleverly designed to manipulate. that when he made known to the people that he was pastoring, the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And in the next few sentences, he describes something that happened to him and John and uh, James when they were on top of a mountain. And all of a sudden, Jesus was literally transformed in front of them to his glory. And it was so powerful that, uh, this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so if you want to reference that, look that up and reread that story. But they were overcome by his majestic glory. And they heard the Father from heaven saying to his son, you are my beloved, and I'm well pleased with you. And they heard that voice coming from heaven while they were on that mountain. Now, as Peter's writing this book, to various churches in Asia Minor, the main theme of Peter's second letter is to contrast false teaching about Christ by him proclaiming the good news of this Messiah Jesus and what scriptures have taught since the beginning of creation. He also spends most of the letter denouncing these teachers in their assumption that the grace of God gives them liberty to do anything that their strong desires lead them to. So this so-called liberty that he talks about comes out in arrogance towards authority, sexual misconduct, extreme excess in drinking and eating, and greed for money. Peter points out that this is not the true grace of God and that the exact opposite of the way of righteousness according to Christ. Peter states that they are bringing destructive heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring on themselves quick destruction. Now, that's a really brief oversight, you know, overview of Second Peter. But I'm going to zero in on two main points that Peter brings out in this passage. You remember back that other slide, we were talking about two guideposts on this pathway of following Christ. The first is Peter's statement that we did not follow cleverly invented myths or fables, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And in Peter's time, myths and fables were often viewed as a mechanism to teach pagan religious truths to people who did not have the intellectual capacity to apprehend matters of the spiritual domain directly. In the time of Aristotle, which was a number of centuries later, he commented, There's a mythical form that we choose to make apprehension possible for the masses for their religious instruction. It might bring to your mind that statement that was made that religion is the opiate of the masses. And in the case, really, of religious dogma that's based on legends and fables and proclaims an outward obedience without an inward change, that statement is really correct. Peter is proclaiming the absolute exact opposite by saying eyewitnesses and prophecy fulfilled is the solid foundation of the truth that is in Jesus. As we look around our culture today, especially here in America, newest is best. Anybody disagree with that one? Okay, you don't have to be brave and say, yeah, I disagree. New ideas, new beliefs, new consumables, whatever's new is to be embraced without any introspection or examination, whether it be true or not. I'm not trying to generalize, overgeneralize, but again, for time's sake, I'm just putting out that premise. There's also a strong movement for the revisionism of history in our culture. But in Peter's world, For something to be true, it must be shown to have an ancient heritage. You can see this conviction in all throughout Scripture, in early Judaic and Christian writings, as well as many ancient secular historians for their basis of truth. When Peter or John or the other apostles addressed troubled churches, they ground the basis for their statements in the antiquity of what they had seen and heard from other eyewitnesses. When Peter is using the term we have seen, he's referring to the earliest disciples, especially the apostles, those who personally saw and lived with Jesus in the earth in his earthly days. Why are witnesses crucially important? Well, for sure, in today's courts, accurate facts are determined by witnesses who will either convict or exonerate the accused. We see in other scriptures that Jesus appointed apostles and others to be his witnesses. Moses in the book of Deuteronomy taught that testimony must be based on two or three or more witnesses. Like Peter, Luke, in telling his account, of Jesus' life, it's called the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, claims that his gospel or his good news is based only on eyewitness testimony. Let's look at the next slide and see what the Apostle John had to say from his first letter to churches that he was writing to. John says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. We write this to make our hmm, sorry to make our joy complete. Look at the amazing passion of what he witnessed. He's speaking about the living person, Jesus Christ. He claims is based on truth. The things that he will say about Jesus Christ correspond to the way Jesus actually appeared. Lived, died, and came back from the dead. John is saying, I heard him. I saw him. I even touched him. There was a real visceral experience of this Jesus. Now, currently for us, we don't get the privilege of seeing him in person or touching him or holding on to him. One day we will when he comes back for us. But through the agency of the Spirit of God, he brings us into a place of experiencing him in real, tangible, and expressive ways that change us from the inside out. This is what John is talking about. Jesus of Nazareth's coming is a historical fact and not some religious fantasy. These ancient writers were concerned that their reports would be accurate. In those times, social stability was threatened when people no longer told the truth. This is just as accurate in our stability today. No difference but John and Peter's personal, extensive, tangible proof, along with other eyewitnesses, so that it could not be some personal delusion some guy cooked up. This is what backed up their letters teaching about Jesus. Now, moving on to the second part of Peter's declaration here in his letter is one of fulfilled prophecy. So let's just reread that passage Again, in that second slide, he again states, We have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of the scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to look at a few things here about this. But he, Peter is, wants his readers to understand that when they're talking about prophecy, we're not talking about individual prophecies given uh, by the Spirit of the, of the Lord uh, to individuals. He's more or less talking about what ancient prophets wrote in what we call the Old Testament, being fulfilled. And that as these men were experiencing God, they were carried along. It's a term in the Greek that is, is very similar to, uh, let's say, in, in a river or in the ocean. You're carried along by the tides of the currents, or you put up your sail so that the wind carries you in a certain direction as you move the rudder accordingly. That's the picture that Peter is, is, is trying to convey in his letter to his hearers. So these men were not just in some uh, fixed state and then all of a sudden they, their, their personalities and who they were was overwritten. It's more or less this connection with this, the living God being carried along and given his word to proclaim to the nation Israel primarily. Look, the ancient prophets didn't even know the meaning of what they themselves wrote. Peter, and I forget if it's in First and Second Peter, but in his letter, he says, they looked into these things. They looked deeply into these things, trying to figure out what they had heard. They were carried themselves by the Spirit of God to write and speak these out. But the fulfillment of these, these words was to be the absolute proof the prediction was of God and no private invention of these men and women who spoke this. Limited time this morning, and I need to check that really quick, is going to allow me to only bring up two examples of fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament that were literally fulfilled. First of all, I want to point out in the Old Testament different prophets, and then even into what we call the New Testament, Jesus himself spoke about a time when all the people of Israel would be thrown out of the land and scattered throughout the whole earth. But that, in a future time, they would be regathered into their original homeland. Now, many of you might be familiar with the history of Israel That the first part of them being thrown out was fulfilled in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. And then finally, uh, a few years later, the final Jewish rebellion was crushed sometime at the fortress of Masada. And for almost 19 centuries, different writers, when they were confronted with these prophecies of of the nation Israel being regathered, almost without exception, would struggle to believe that this would literally happen. Now, why is that? Why is that hard to believe? No other nation that had experienced a destruction of their homeland for that amount of time had ever been renationalized as a nation. That's a historical fact. And so Bible interpreters theologians, whoever, they struggled. They would, oh, I can't see that ever happening. That's never happened. How could God even do that? And so they would. But there's one thing that God has a heart to do, and that is to fulfill what he says. When he makes a promise, he will literally fulfill that promise. And that's important. I don't have time to go into the subtleties of sometimes one or two partial fulfillments until the third fulfillment, But we have to be aware that God is passionately and zealously able to keep his promises. But then, in 1948, the nation Israel was recognized again as a nation. And despite many attacks since 1948 to destroy them, has remained an independent nation. That is, in historical terms, miraculous, guys. Miraculous. Remember, this has never happened in the history of the world. So when God spoke through these men, and occasionally women, that the nation would be regathered into their land and would be fruitful again, is an absolute historical miracle. But that is the basis for which we hold on to the truth of this pathway that we're walking in following Jesus Christ, in which the second example will highlight. The coming of the King and Messiah was going to be fulfilled in one individual. This was probably one of the the strongest themes you're going to find in the Old Testament of future prophecy, was a coming King and Messiah. Now, they are somewhat conflicting because on one hand you have a suffering king, a suffering Messiah, and then you have a triumphant king and Messiah returning to bring glory to the kingdom of God on earth and resurrecting Israel to its former glory. And so you read these things and there's this, which was very perplexing to people that read these prophecies. In what we call the Old Testament, there are at least 332 distinct predictions regarding the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled perfectly. The combination of this evidence together from a simple, simple statistical perspective is absolutely overwhelming. I'm going to show you a slide in a minute. But Dr. Peter Stoner, and the man who did this um, study, was the chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College, was then the chairman of the Science Division in Westmont College. He was a Professor Emeritus of Science at Westmont College, Professor Emeritus of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City, Pasadena City College. He ran an extensive calculation of the statistical odds of one man fulfilling these prophecies. Here's his findings. You already put it up. The probability of any one man fulfilling eight, just eight of these 332 prophecies, is one in, and I'm not intelligent enough to tell you what that number is, but it's 10 to the 17th power. That number of silver dollars would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. If you consider just 48 of these prophecies, he writes, the odds become 1 in 10 to the 157th power. I can't grasp that. There might be some of you that are a whole lot more intelligent than I am, Probably most of you, but I think you might find that hard to grasp. Again, 332 is a statistical miracle. And yet he fulfilled each one of these. I would strongly urge all of us, to do a quick internet search on this authentication of Jesus as the promised Messiah King and encourage ourselves as to how faithful he is to keep his promises. Why do I say this? Why am I bringing up just a few points here of these signposts along the pathway of of following Christ as a disciple? It's vitally important that we do not be carried away by the changing tides, uncertainties, and frightening possibilities that we may face in the future. There's a lot of unknowns, isn't there? Let's just be straight and honest about it. There are a thousand unknowns. There's probably a good 10,000 what-ifs that you think about your lives, your friends' lives, maybe your children, your children's children, Let's just be straight and honest about it. We are facing a lot of unknowns. The truth of who God is, it's tethered to an ancient and verifiable foundation that cannot be shaken. In fact, this is what God says in the book of Hebrews. He makes this promise. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Maybe that's not an encouraging word for you. But this is why I've prefaced that by sharing this morning these points. That if we stay on the foundation of what he has said, and again, in following him, we yield our hearts and our minds and our passions and our love to him. We stay on a foundation that cannot be shaken. So no matter the externals that do happen, and, and, it's, and there's no, no shame in being afraid or down or sometimes depressed, but staying there and being overcome by these uncertainties and fears is not God's desire for us. That we might be able to walk in a place of peace and rest. Let's go to the last slide. I think David, King David wrote and sang a lot of different musical tunes and wrote a number of poems in musical lyrics. But in Psalm four, this is what the end of Psalm, the Psalm says. Many people say, who will show us better times? Does that sound familiar to you? If we could just get back to where we were before this all started, everything would be good. We want better times. I don't want another year of what I've experienced. We hear it in our own minds and hearts, and we read about it, and we see it. So what's true today was true for that day with King David. But look at what he says. Let your face smile on us, Lord. You have given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of grain and new wine. Because remember, in that day, it was tough just to get three meals a day. You struggled just to have enough bread and food every day. So this, this statement... You give me greater joy than those who are harvesting abundantly. Look, I I am very conscious in my own life and in the life of so many others that I know that there isn't a lot of abundance. It doesn't seem there's a lot of abundance. But when I can go home and have a hot shower, I can open up a refrigerator and have something to eat, and I can drive a car around compared to so many, I I think we have abundance. Now, I'm not minimizing the struggles we face, but I do want to give some perspective. That's all. So he says, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. Based on everything that we've looked at this morning, that's why David could say, you alone will give me peace. How many of, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but how many of you have struggled with sleep in the last two years and being able to rest your head and actually go to sleep without going on? It's so important that we connect to this living God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that, as David could sing, that we're experiencing joy and peace and abundance in him even when there's lack and need all around us and maybe in our own lives. Look, guys, we will never have all our questions answered this side of eternity. And if that is your goal and that's the only way you'll have peace, don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. But again, as Peter says in the second part of this letter, he says you would do well to pay attention to a, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Look, let me compare with what Peter's saying in an analogy. This may be a bad analogy, but hey, go with it. In the light of of the troubles of today, we can see certain things, and they can be very scary. I liken that to on a dark night when the power 's down in the house you 've got a candle. Hard to see much with one candle in a dark house, But when you flip on the power comes on, and all the lights in the house are lit up at night, everything takes on a different viewpoint, doesn 't it that 's what Peter 's saying. In this time of darkness, let the house lights come on. Pay attention to the lamp that's shining there. Until the morning star, until the day dawns. And when the day dawns, you don't have to light your house, do you? You can see everything. That's what Peter's talking about. When Christ really comes and returns, the day is going to dawn. So let this morning star rise in your heart. He's speaking about Christ himself. Let that rise up in your heart. So, Daniel, why don't you come on up, wherever you are. There he is. And we're going to have a time of communion. Again, when we have this time of, of sharing in the body and the blood of the Lord, these are implements. The bread and the, and the juice that we drink are symbolizing something that happened in reality 20 centuries ago. On that night when, when Christ was going to sacrifice himself for us, for the world, to take upon himself the sins of the world and to die on a cross and shed his blood, this is a historical fact. Not some fable, not some fantasy, but it did happen. And As we partake of the, the, the elements of communion, we are remembering until he comes back again that night, that sacrifice, that day, which spoke to the empty tomb three days later. Father, whether we recognize that we are needy or not, the truth is we are needy and we need you. We give to you our fears, our doubts. We give to you. Even sometimes our complacency and ask that you would just wash over us, cleanse us and renew us, strengthen us by that very precious reality of your Holy Spirit that dwells within. Fall upon us, change us from the inside out. Let us see you, let us hear you, and just change us from that exchange to us.